Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Leaf by Lantern podcast. We're still between seasons, so this is a bonus episode that will give you more insight into fairy tales and storytelling from a unique perspective. The life and work of W.H. Auden, a 20th century poet, author, playwright, and literary critic. Auden is famous for his creative gifts and cultural commentary, but what made me curious about him for this podcast was his role as a champion of fairy tales against those who are suspicious or scornful of them. To learn more about Auden and his defense of fairy tales, I reached out to a writer friend, Frank Ewart, who loves Auden's work and has personally collected the complete works of W.H. Auden, prose. Frank and I talked about two particular works, Auden's Afterwards of the Golden Key, the Golden Key being a literary fairy tale by George MacDonald, and Auden's introduction to the tales of Grimm and Anderson. We delved into what we, as artists who follow Christ, can learn from W.H. Auden as we approach not only fairy tale retellings, but any genre of writing. Here's some background on Frank. Frank, or J.F. Ewer, is a creative writer and consultant. He was born and raised in the rainy Fraser Valley of beautiful British Columbia. Now he and his family live in Middle Tennessee. By day, he writes copy and transforms data into stories. By night, he coaches youth baseball, writes creative nonfiction, and stays up way too late watching the Vancouver Canucks. Here's our conversation on W.H. Auden, fairy tales, scripture, and the craft of writing. Hi, Frank. Welcome to Leaf by Lantern. Thanks for having me, Alicia. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy you're willing to come on and uh, tell me more about W.H. Auden because uh, I think I told you in the email, um, I feel like I should know everything about him just because he comes up and 20th century literature. He was a friend, at least of Tolkien, um, probably known to Lewis. Uh, you can fill in there more. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad to talk to someone who can actually talk more about his thought and his poetry. Well, I'm glad to do that. Um, my my grad school advisor called me an Auden fanboy, um, which <laughs> I did not mind at all. Uh, and especially like he asked me twice to lecture to some of his undergraduates about Auden which was just so much fun uh, because when you have to teach about somebody, you get to know them that much better. And so, yeah, glad to be here. And he was, yeah, he was, uh, he was, I mean, it's hard sometimes to tell how all those circle of people uh, around the Inklings time connected. Uh, He was certainly very familiar with both Lewis and uh, Tolkien, quoted them extensively. He was a huge fan of Charles Williams. He, for a while, read The Descent of the Dove every year. Uh, I think in the 1940s, he was very immersed in their thought and very sympathetic and and very much, um, I'm not sure what the right word is, but very, very in those lines. And yet also brings some very different influences and different perspectives, which is fun. Uh, so it's fun to to dive into that world. Yeah. So W.H. Auden, he did so much. I mean, I, I love when you look at someone's biography and it says he was a this and a this and a this and a this. So he's like poet, literary cr- cr- critic, playwright, like half a dozen other things. But just for our conversation, we, we decided to focus on fairy tales um, mm-hmm. with the, the brand for this podcast. So can you tell me um, a little bit more about when you first fell in love with Auden and then weave that into your history with fairy tales? Sure. 
the fairy tales probably came first, if I'm honest. Probably somewhere in high school. Uh, decided I just for a random kick. I, I can't tell you what led me down that road. Um, it, it may have been actually reading George MacDonald, uh, reading his longer works, kind of his dream novels, uh, Fantasties mm. and Lilith, and then discovering he had a whole collection of fairy tales. And from there, I just kept going. I uh, picked up a copy of Grimm's uh, Red Hand Hands, Christian Anderson, um, which are different types of fairy tales, but still kind of in that vein. And was just very captured by that and loved this idea of fairy. Um, and, and fairy being more like what Tolkien would have described it as and spelled it differently, um, F-A-I-R-I-E, if, I, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, just this idea of this, this, this other world that can exist there and ways of kind of, I guess, re-enchanting the world um, or, or maybe seeing the enchantment of the world is a better way of putting it. Just really enjoyed that uh, and fell into that. Odd and I stumbled upon uh, my junior year of college. I was assigned to write a response to his poem, The Shield of Achilles. And so read that, really liked the poem, loved writing about that. And um, I tend to just, like when I discover a new author, I come home with all their books or all that I can <laughs> find in the library. Um, just like I need to you know, immerse myself in this. I, I, I tend to be pretty, pretty narrow in my reading, but I dive deeply um, as a general rule. And so... Uh, as I was scanning the books, and he has a lot of books, so I didn't come home with everything. But um, I discovered a volume called For the Time Being. And um, I thought, oh, that's an interesting title. And it's the same title as an Annie Dillard book, one of her later later works. And I was a huge Annie Dillard fan in high school. And so I thought, I wonder if there's a connection. I uh, picked it up. I never really figured out what the connection was, if there was one, because um, they're very different books. Um Auden's book for the time being is a is a retelling of the Christmas story, and I just loved that. Uh, just was quite taken with the way that he recast uh, the, Chris, the the Christmas story characters, uh, kind of in 1940s language, but doing so in poetry. Uh, and from there, I just kind of fell in, and he kept coming back. You know, I had to write a paper on Greek thought. Well, Auden wrote on Greco-Roman philosophy and different types of heroes, and so it was a perfect. I've got a source. Um, and, and because he was such a wide reader uh, and he wrote so much, there was pretty much always a way to work on into whatever I was writing about. Uh, and so I just kept doing that and then was able to, in grad school, pursue that further and eventually write a long paper on him for what they called it at my institution, a major project, um, kind of like a light dissertation. And so I just loved uh, really how the way Auden looks at the world. And again, very similar to that kind of finding the enchantment of the world. And we'll, I'm sure we'll dive into that deeper later in our conversation here. So he didn't write fairy tales, but he was a keen uh, fan and a keen reader of them. And as you and I have talked about as we prepared for this, uh, mm -hmm. kind of wrote in their defense uh, a few times and uh, really, really appreciated what they brought. He, he was an archaic person. So, um, you know, he's writing poetry in the middle of the 20th century, kind of in the wake of the wasteland, right? T.S. Eliot comes and he, mm -hmm. he publishes that poem and it defines the poetic landscape uh, for, the, for a good chunk of time. Um, and it's, 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 
it's not strictly metered, at least in a way that's obvious. Like it's not it's not free verse, but it's not it's not following like a sonnet structure or another type of a structure. It's it's this poem. It's very um, it's very it's re- referential in all these ways that are not easily understood, right? So when I think <laughs> Eliot later wrote, even here's 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 some of my allusions, right? It doesn't tell you what it means. He's <laughs> like, here's what I'm alluding to, and Auden kind of. I don't think he was reacting to Eliot, but certainly reacting to some of the world around him, planted his feet firmly in the past and said, well, I'm going to go and, and revive all these old, out-of-date, poetic forms that nobody is writing in anymore. But he did it in ways that were really bringing in current language. And so he was constantly uh, kind of living in the past, but not just living in the past like, hey, I'm going to be old-fashioned and, and retro. It was... I'm going to look at the past, see how looking back changes my view of the past, but then also see how looking into the past changes my view of the present and the future. And uh, so I just really appreciate the way that he constantly did that, the way he was constantly translating things that were old into new garb uh, so that you had to kind of sit with them differently. And uh, that's kind of why I really leaned into his work and continue to this day. To, to spend time reading him. It's, it's always a great delight uh, for me because I'm constantly learning and appreciating just his, his perspective on, on the world. That is fascinating. And that puts together some puzzle pieces for me that like I had in different places because it was a scary time. It was a time of such change and upheaval. I mean, the atomic bomb, like there had mm-hmm. not been one of those before. So to find comfort in looking at the wisdom of the past is something worth listening to versus something worth rewriting. Um, mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. So, and the subject of Auden defending fairy tales, um, I wondered if you could talk about the two pieces uh, that we chose for this conversation. So you sent me some scans, which is very nice. The Afterward to the Golden Key, the short fairy tale by George MacDonald, and then the introduction to the tales of Grimm and Anderson. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so I read the afterward to the golden key and it's very short, but one phrase I loved was that um, he said, George MacDonald has this atmosphere of goodness in this story and his other books. So uh, goodness is a huge topic. It's um, it's too big to engage with fully in scripture. But I did think about this as I was looking um, in a word search, just good, the idea of what is good. Mm. And it's always linked with God, like anything truly good is the province of God. Mm-hmm. So could you talk about that a little bit um, and focus it on us as artists? Like in what ways can we cultivate an atmosphere of goodness mm. in our work without without trying to make things too happy, without ignoring suffering and ignoring death? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. And it's, it's, it's interesting, even in that little afterward that he, he was writing, uh, you know, he's praising McDonald. He doesn't really tell us how McDonald does it. <laughs> I don't know if maybe he knew himself. He's just, just like, it's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, not many people have this ability to, to capture that uh, in their work. And we as artists are like, come on, like we, we need, <laughs> we need like a, some, some principles here. That's right. What's the formula that I can follow so that I can, can live <laughs> that out? You know, when, when I was thinking through this question, one of the things that first occurred to me was just to, to go to, to Augustine, really. And I, I'm not an, an Augustinian scholar, so uh, I might get details wrong. So I'm going to share my, 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 my summary of it. And, and then if there are people out there who have more clarity, they, please reach out to me and correct me. But 
in his view, and it's something that really stuck with me when I when I learned about this back in, in undergrad, was evil is not a thing. It's not a substance. There's not like this kind of thing called evil that kind of gets out and pollutes the world. Evil is a thing. Like there is evil, it's present. People do evil things. Um, you can have evil people. But his his teaching is that evil is always a perverted or misdirected good. So it's mm-hmm. it's always like the, the world was created good and evil is not this thing that's invaded the world, but rather something good that's being put to the wrong use. Or if you consider his kind of his ordering of loves, it's something that's loved out of order. It's, it's, it's something that you're idolizing, perhaps, or uh, loving more than you ought, uh, or, you know, d- basically um, not paying enough attention to the right loves, that sort of thing. And mm. so I think when we're, when we're considering what it means to capture goodness in our work, I, I do think part of it means we also have to capture, like, what is evil? So, like, having a story where nothing bad ever happens probably is not going to be very interesting. Like we just know that as storytellers, mm-hmm. we need some conflict. We need some tension. Um, mm-hmm. And so you need at least the threat of something bad happening. And, and we, as readers and people who engage with stories, we love it when there's something on the line. Like, even if we can't stand the tension, like, Oh, I just can't, <laughs> it's, it's too mm-hmm. much. I, you know, I, I, I always had a friend, uh, I don't know if she still does this, but she would always read the last chapter of a book and before she read the rest of the story. <laughs> Um, because she just couldn't deal with the tension. I, I, I don't condone that, just for, for the record. As, as a storyteller, I don't condone doing that, but I understand mm-hmm. the impulse. That's why I finish books in one day, usually. I, I can't stand <laughs> it. I, I can't right. stand waiting. But there, there's a sense in which we need that. And I, I think as storytellers, you know, for us to capture goodness, it doesn't mean we have to give equal time to both, but we need to recognize the presence of both. And... I think it comes to as well being able to notice what's around us. One thing I would really want to push for, I think, as I, as I think about us as creators, as artists, storytellers, is that goodness isn't just about morality or ethics. Like that's a component mm-hmm. of goodness. But when we say God is good, we don't just mean that God never sins. We don't just mean that God has good behavior. We mean that like his whole essence is good, is goodness. Mm-hmm. Everything he does is good. In fact, when we first learn that word uh, in Genesis, it's not applied to, it's not applied in a situation of right or wrong. It's simply like an assessment of what was created. What was created mm-hmm. was good. And I, I think we have to keep that in mind because it's it, then goodness becomes not just a matter of, okay, how can I make sure that the people with the best behavior in my stories have the best outcome? But it's mm-hmm. like, what does it mean to taste and see that the Lord is good? And mm-hmm. that doesn't just mean living rightly, though I think that is part of it. Um, I don't want to sound like I'm shoving that to the side, but it means like, what, what, what does that look like? Right when we think about our own lives, uh, what are we capturing when we sit with friends uh, in those moments where we can taste and see the goodness of the Lord? Whether it's you know at a party in our backyards, at church, on a walk by ourselves, and so I think it's it's really us as as storytellers, as artists, um, noticing the goodness around us, and then bearing witness to that. 
that's not really a principle. It's not something that we can just say, hey, I, I know how to do that now in a story. But I, I do think if we're noticing, if we are noticing the world around us, that is the key to love. And that is the key to seeing and then sharing that goodness. Um, because when you truly notice and see what's around you, when you're paying attention, um, I, I think that naturally leads to gratitude and thankfulness and a heart to share. Hey, can you all come and see what I saw here? Mm -hmm. Because it was awesome. I think that's, that's essentially what a storyteller is doing, um, just in a larger scale sometimes mm -hmm. uh, in their oh, work. That's beautiful. And um, yeah, you use the word thankfulness. I was also thinking joy. Um, because joy is, um, mm. I should look back at the Greek, but I was taught joy means grace recognized. So you're seeing how mm. good God has been in forgiveness and, um, and giving, and it's, you're, you're letting that affect your whole being. Um, so lovely. Frank, can you tell me about, um, you know, back to an atmosphere of goodness, can you talk about how that mm -hmm. and the realities of grace how, how have you found those showing up in your own writing? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great question, uh, a great thing to think about. For me, it's often about what can, I, what can I offer that's going to delight my readers, which usually starts with what's going to delight me. I don't know that we can – I think this came up in some, one of his other essays. where uh, He was talking about making fairy tales viable. And people would complain that they weren't viable in the middle of the 20th century. Like, these are these are silly stories. Why are we reading them? And you say, no, they are. And, and But you can't make something viable unless you love it. And so I think as, as, as a writer, that's really is what, what, what am I loving? And then what, am I, what do I have to offer people? So I, it, it does start before writing in my heart. Like, you know, pay attention. What are the things that I am loving? And are they things that I actually want to be sharing with the world? And then also being willing to say, okay, you know, I'm going to love different things, say, for example, than you will. Well, that doesn't mean that either of our work is, is better or worse. It's just the, the benefit of, hey, you're going to have different delights to share than I will. Uh, and we both need to lean into that and, and, and because we have those different things to offer to our readers. So whether I'm writing kind of a memoir essay, which I've done a few of over the past couple of years, or writing fiction, which I've, I've written written a work of fiction previously of a collection of short stories about hockey, which is the most unfairy tale thing you can think of. <laughs> I don't know. I'm um, sure they're parallels. And <laughs> well, there, there probably are. That would be an interesting, interesting kind of uh, experiment, I'm sure, to figure out how to, how to make a fairy tale translated into a, into a hockey story. Um, and then other, I'm working on other fiction right now, kind of that's just in the, in the draft stages. And it is, it is really about, okay, what, what do I have to delight in? Uh, and then uh, what, what, what can I share? How can I invite others to participate in that delight? Um, because that really is what we're doing as writers. We're inviting people in. Um, Edward Mendelssohn, who is the uh, literary executor for Auden, described what Auden viewed in his poetry, what he wanted to, to attain as remote intimacy. Kind of the sense of where when you're reading one of his poems, you're reading it as if he's speaking it to you. The sense of, hey, you know, this, there's, there's a conversation almost happening there. Uh, I think that's just, just a great image uh, and a, a great capture of, of what we're all trying to do as writers. Where we're not trying to speak to a, a faceless mob. We want every person who sits down with our work 
to feel like they have something special there. Uh, just like we have with, I think, with our favorite books or our favorite songs. You know, when we're reading one of our beloved novels, we don't go, oh, like, this is what the author wrote for everybody. I mean, that's true. But we, all, we go at the moment, oh, this is what I'm getting from it. This is the conversation I'm having with that author. Um, and I think that does happen through just offering what we, what we see, what we delight in, what we notice. Um, and, and for me, it is always important, especially when I write about, um, uh, about my own life, but I think it's true of any story is, is where are there opportunities for thankfulness? There's a lot of memoirs out there that, uh, don't have a very mm -hmm. thankful tone and I, I don't want to come off as judgmental. So I don't want to say that if they don't have a thankful tone, they're wrong. Cause I, I'm not there to judge their stories. But it's important for me, if I, if I, as I tell my story, for me to be thankful uh, and to, to offer that, where even if I'm writing about a memory that was difficult, like I wrote an essay about my mm -hmm. grandfather's death and the grief around that and friction between my dad and myself during that time. And, um, you know, I, I, there is still much to be thankful for in the midst of some very hard and hard to write memories. And, I, and so it's that mixture of those things, right? If, if I want to steal again from, from Auden and one of his earlier poems, right? It's like, that's how I'm trying to teach myself how to praise or how I'm trying to praise myself in the midst of something that, that feels sad or hard uh, or hurt. And so I think that, that, that for me is what I, what I try and pursue. I, I don't come to a, a piece and say, how can I force it? It needs to come on its own. Uh, it needs to be natural. And that, again, starts with me in my heart. Where am I naturally seeing that? Because that's, uh, out of, what does it say in, in, in the Gospels? Out of the overflow of the heart we speak. And I remember a professor in college used the, the example. I think he was actually giving us a moral lesson. Like, you know, somebody bumps you and they then and they spill you, as it were, what, mm -hmm. what tips out, <laughs> you know, are, are you, are you cursing or are you blessing? So there, there's, and that's, that's certainly true. And yet it's also true of anything that we say comes from, I, I, like I said, I love that image of like a cup overflowing. So what it is bumped, what is it that spills out? And I, I hope that what I pray and hope is that what it spills out for me is that kind of sense of thankfulness and wonder at the world. That question of seeing comes up again and again, right? Like, how are you seeing? And then what are you filling yourself up with, um, as you said, and what mm. will spill out? So, yeah, what will spill out in your writing? I know for some some memoirs, I think, can can stray into the territory just because the, um, the speaker is shaping the story and shaping what we as readers see can be kind of negative, um, mm -hmm. depending on their experiences, which people can have really hard experiences. So you, you understand why. Mm -hmm. You can you mm -hmm. can choose to tilt the narrative towards what you know of ultimate truth, like towards hope, or you can stay in mm -hmm. this really hard, terrible thing happened to me, and look how terrible it was. And there's there's a choice there. Mm -hmm. I hadn't um, thought about um, memoir. Let's see. So we're getting along. So do you want to talk about tales of Grimm and Anderson? Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, what what you were just saying about memoir, I think, is also mm -hmm. true of fairy tales. And I think that's actually, we can segue back what you were saying about memoir and tilting stories. I think there's, there's a lot of similarities to that with fairy tales. One of the interesting things about fairy tales that occurred to me as I was preparing uh, for this conversation 
is that they feel like mm. tropes to us. Like they feel like, of course, this happens. Of course, you know, this this wandering penniless prince ends up marrying the rich princess and becoming the ruler. Like that's that's just what happens. But at the heart of it, fairy tales are very mm. subversive. Like they're describing something that should not happen. That's impossible, really, right? Especially if people behave themselves. They're not supposed to do that. And and in one of the uh, one of the in the introduction to Tales of Grimm and Anderson mm-hmm. that Auden wrote, he talks at one point about the is it the water tale? Uh, the water of life. Yeah, it's one of Grimm's. The water of life. Yeah, and you know, in a sense, what you see there and the hero in that tale, and I'm not, I won't get into it unless you think we need to. What the whole story is. But the, the 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 basically the righteous prince, if you want to put it that way, um, is the one who pays attention to the world around him and who sees things in a trusting, thankful manner. Mm-hmm. So he's mistreated by his brothers, uh, he's mistreated by his father, and yet he doesn't spend a lot of time. Um, he, he doesn't fall into bitterness. He doesn't you know he doesn't love what he experiences, but he's he's driven by uh, the love for the, the the princess that he met and pursues that. And so I think that there's there's that still that sense in, in fairy tales where um, they they capture that different perspective of life where it's like, okay, the, 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 especially the characters who are successful often in, in fairy tales this is probably not true across the board, but at least in this particular one and I think more more often than not, are the ones who see other people, for who they are and don't just see other people as, as tools or who don't just see the hurts that they've experienced and then choose to let those things dictate their view. Mm. They're the ones who are willing to say, Hey, I see somebody in need there, right? They, they act like the good Samaritan. And so I, I think that there's, there's a lot of similarity there and, and where we just miss it, I think, or where I, maybe I should say not we, I'll speak for myself. <laughs> Where I can tend to miss it is go, well, of course these things happen because we're so used to these stories. Um, and I, I wonder what an original audience, right, the original child hearing one of these stories, maybe it's a peasant child somewhere, um, how do these stories hit them, right? Mm. Um, because there is there is a difference there uh, in that perspective, which I think is, is just interesting to sit with uh, and, and learn from. You make me think about... So I have a deep fear as a writer in shaping narratives that all seem unrealistic because that's one of the worst mm-hmm. criticisms, right? Oh, that's so unrealistic. And mm-hmm. realistic is supposed to be, you know, what would happen in the real world. But often like, it seems like people expect realistic things to mean sad or disappointing or someone tries really hard at something mm-hmm. and doesn't work. Um, no one comes to save you. I even um, I just thought of the name of the wind by Patrick Rothfuss, I believe. Have you read that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the beginning, when what's his name, the main character? It's been a while. I mean, something ta- there's a well, there's a massacre of his family, like terrible, terrible, very upsetting. <laughs> I'm pretty sensitive, so that mm-hmm. that book was right on the line. Yeah. And then I, I didn't read the others. Um, beautifully written, you know, he became an orphan in a, in a drastically violent way, and then. He for about three years of the narrative, he's just barely staying alive. And from what I remember of what the text says, it's like you, you expect it to be like a fairy tale, right? You you know you lose your mm-hmm. parents, but then you go to this wood, and then this magical creature shows up and helps you, or you find a hidden treasure. Something happens, but of course none of that happened to me. 
So he has to make his way kind of by clinging by his fingernails, like just working his way up and bad things happen and then more bad things happen. He has to recover. And there's a certain realism to that. Like people do suffer terribly in life and suffer for a long time. Yes, that's mm-hmm. real. You don't want to ignore that. And mm-hmm. in scripture too, as I mentioned, like the story of Jeremiah is is not a case study in obey God and everything will turn out perfectly, except that it is because it's it's eternal hope, not mm-hmm. hope just within this world. You know, no matter what happens in this life, to be saved is is to know that um, God will make it all right in the end and you'll be a part of his kingdom. So it's that tension of mm-hmm. su- real suffering. And yet to show an act of grace, to show someone coming and rescuing someone totally unexpectedly, or mm-hmm. the, you know, the main character who's, you know, fallen and fallen in a well and then some they find some crazy treasure or something that helps them get out. That's not unrealistic in the Christian worldview because God intervenes in human history in miraculous ways or in ways that are not miraculous in the sense of breaking the laws of science, but are directly his providence. I felt that in mm-hmm. my own life too. So to be realistic, you don't have to worry about making it extra negative so people don't think it's, it's all like happy-go-lucky. It's, mm-hmm. To have a beautiful act of grace or mercy is truly realistic from from a scriptural worldview. And I love that. I was thinking about the dwarfs at the end of the last battle. Oh, yeah. Uh, they come up in my mind a lot. Um, I read it. I can't remember when I last read it. It was when my daughter was younger and I went through each of them with her. And I think I enjoyed them more than she did uh, at the time. You get to the dwarfs and... The dwarfs cannot see the goodness of the new land that they are, the new Narnia. Lewis suggests that they end up spending eternity trapped in the horrible stable uh, where they were when Narnia, the original Narnia, folded and ended. So, so sad. It is. It's heartbreaking. And I, I do think that the, the, that call to be a realistic, it depends on what you see in the world. So you can only make real on the page what you see and believe in the world. For some people, that might be that view, which is tragic. And I, I grieve for that. I grieve for them on that. I, I think that for us, I would prefer, I mean, my, I, I don't really care so much about being realistic as I do about being believable. Hmm. And and that's a, that's a very different kind of take in my mind because that can include fantastic things happening. But that doesn't mean that everybody's going to go with you on that. Right. So I think just by nature of of some readers don't see the world that way. So they're not going to they're not going to, be able to go with us in those things. And that is what it is. But I, I think that it, what you're just what you've described there is that wonderful tension that we have. And, and I think I don't know if you feel this. I feel this. The desire to write the stories that I hope to see in the world. Oh, yeah. That's certainly strong in me. One of the psalms that means so much to me, uh, it's actually a psalm that my mom gave to me when I was born, uh, was, is Psalm 27. And towards the end of the psalm, there's a verse um, that says, Surely I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I wrestle with that because I have, and yet I'm always worried, I'm always fearful um, that it that I won't get to fully see that. Like there will be like it, that because there is there there is this kind of sense of what you talked about with realism being well things don't end well, but what if they do? So Frank, so why don't we finish by my asking three bonus questions, but short ones. I would love to know your favorite W. H. Auden poem or the one that you think people should start with first, 
Secondly, your favorite fairy tale, if you can pick just one. And third, your favorite book of the Bible. Great questions. Favorite Auden poem. There's a short one called Secrets that I really like. It actually has a fairy tale reference in it. Um, I won't recite it here, but there is a fairy tale reference in it. And it's a wonderful little poem about, about love uh, that I would encourage everybody to read. Uh, you can find it online if you Google it. It's not one of his anthologized ones, but I stumbled upon it one day. and was like, this is really cool. So it's, that's probably my favorite one. Fairy tales. I mean, I, I'm a, I am a sucker for things like, I, I like the water of life where you've got somebody who is poor and they're given something new without actually wanting it. Like they're not, uh, so like the, 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 the youngest prince in that story isn't trying to do anything other than heal his father out of pure love for his father. Uh, and that's kind of like he get the blessings he receives are kind of like the blessings that Solomon received after he asked for wisdom. And so I just love that. I, I love the, the, that kind of pattern story. So it's hard for me to pick just one because I know that that is a kind of a common theme. The one, the imagery of the one I, I like the most is probably the light princess. Is that allowed to, allowed to name as a fairy tale? Yeah, I think so. Literary fairy tale. Yeah. Okay. It is a good one. I like that <laughs> it's one. It's a literary fairy tale. But just the, the waxing and waning mm. with the moon um, and the other elements in there, because there is a real sense of, of a battle between good and evil mm. in that story. And it's, it's also just such a beautiful tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. that one is magnetic. Yeah, and then, and then what the, what the, I can't remember if he's a prince, but the hero in the story has to do to rescue. I am a sucker, a sucker for that. I like it when it's when there's something you have to to work hard to achieve. Uh, there's a quest, you know. I think we all. I don't. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think most of us like quests, so I, I love a good quest. Book of the Bible. Oh <laughs> man, I think I would say um, it's because it's, it's bounced around over the years. That's the wonderful thing is that you can have different mm-hmm. different favorites throughout your life. Um, I would say lately it's been, can I say the gospels? Is that, is that, do I have to, do I have to narrow it down further than that? Just because lately just leaning into paying attention to the life of Jesus. So not just like, okay, there's the, there's the Easter story and the power behind that, but what Jesus did for when he was just living among mm-hmm. us and the way he carried himself and the way he talked to people. I just, I'm really struck by that. And uh, I've, I've been reading for the last couple of years uh, in the message just because I enjoy Peterson's mm-hmm. kind of rendering there. And I enjoy kind of the, the, the shift of after growing up in a more traditional church setting, just to change the view a little bit and see, see from a different perspective. And um, just constantly amazed by the kind of questions Jesus asks and the observations that he makes and what people do and don't notice. Well, mm-hmm. I do and don't notice, really. I'm one of those people. So that's yeah, that's that's where I've been living and, and love to I I love to come back mm-hmm. to the gospels. Yeah, amen. There's so much beauty there. Yeah, just seeing mm. you know what what does God do when when God incarnate shows up on earth? Like, how does He respond to people? And yeah. Frank, thank you so much for being on this podcast. So I hope people enjoy all your thoughts about W. H. Auden and are curious to read him for themselves. Likewise, and thank you. I always appreciate the chance to talk about Auden, and it was really fun to explore something new that I hadn't thought about with the fairy tale angle. So thank you for, for that invitation. It was a great conversation. Yeah, no problem. So see you again next time. All right, sounds good. Thanks for listening. 
Join next season to learn more about retelling fairy tales according to the truth and beauty of the Bible. Feel free to rate, review, and share this podcast so that other people can enjoy it too. 